Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com. Enjoy. All right, Paul Thomas Anderson is here. Sean Fantasy is here. We did this in December of 2017. You came into my office back when people interacted and we discussed Phantom Thread, a movie that I, both Sean and I really loved. You mentioned during that pod, you were like, oh, I'm kind of messing around with something, but you were elusive. Um, now we're doing this on Zoom. I just want to say I had so much fun when we were in the studio together. I, I, if we could get 50% there on the Zoom, <laughs> I'll be psyched, but I know you're doing these interviews on zoom. It's probably, you, you probably feel the same way as we do, right? I, I do, but I mean, well, I prefer, I would prefer to be on the telephone and even, but, but preferring to the telephone, I would, I, I don't even see why I couldn't be in there in the room with you. Oh, we, we, we would have done it. Yeah, we could have. Sean, Sean's very, he's fearful of all contact. Right That's now. not true. I would have loved <laughs> to have seen Paul. I don't need to see you, Bill, but I would have loved to have seen sure. Paul. Um, all right. So, Last time we did this, I told you about my process for movies where I try to avoid everything and I try yeah. to go and sit in the theater and have the experience the filmmaker wanted me to have, which is yeah. I, I go in with no baggage. I just watch the movie. I react to it. Yeah. I knew you had two first time actors, I guess we'll call it. Um, I didn't realize one of them was from Heim until the credits, even though she looked familiar. I didn't realize it was Philip Seymour Hoffman's son until like a week later. And I told Sean last night, I was like, that was Hoffman's son. I had, I had no idea. I had no baggage with it. So I was looking at it really objectively. And I thought both of them were so great. Um, you've talked about the process with this, but the Hoffman connection you talked about last time you were on with him. Now you did six movies with him and now you're directing his son. And it seems like it, you took a roundabout way to, even get there and cast him. So can we talk about that? Of course. You know, I'm so, I don't know how you, I mean, I'm glad you, you obviously the things that you're looking at are able to kind of feed you information that you want and need and, and you're able to avoid um, this stuff so you can go into a movie cleanly. That's, that's, that's great. That's great. Um, so Cooper, you want to talk about Cooper, right? Casting yeah. Cooper? Let's talk about um, Cooper and the, and the and the lineage because I mean his dad was in more movies than any actor you I think you've done movies with right yes um, so it was it was it was probably a no brainer but in and you know you know anything that's a no brainer you have to make a struggle somehow you have to try to try to make sure that oh I don't know you go through some search uh, we just we cast the film in a traditional way initially you you have a casting director you she you have a certain type you between the ages of 14 and 17 it could be 18 or 19 as long as they look a bit younger um and a sort of and a description and then we saw a series of actors um some of which were very good most of which were you know very irritating and kind of polished and like like ready ready for i don't know 
something shiny and kind of annoying, you know, not, not, not right. Um, and, but more to the point, even with some of the actors that were good, they weren't connecting with Alana. Um, she, you could just see in her face, like there's, she's just sitting across the table from someone who's like saying lines and is little, probably a little bit more interested in their own vanity or like getting a, you know, Disney series than, than, than what the part was, you know, they were really not <laughs> trying to connect. So, um, that my thoughts turned to Cooper because, um, when I asked myself, like, I, well, do I know any very charming, personable, empathetic, grounded and connected 15, 16, 17 year old boys? It was like, well, yeah, there's one right in front of your face who you've known since you were a child, you know, so, since he was a child. Um, and that's, that's how it began. Um, I suppose that there's a long um, navigation of feelings. You sort of wonder like, huh, how? Forgetting the process of making the film, because you know that that's going to be a wonderful, creative and collaborative experience. But let me jump ahead to what it means to put a movie out into the world and, and, and have to have him deal with that. And what does it mean? And weighing, weighing all the pros and cons of all that. Well, yeah, um, but it's worked out quite well. Very proud of him. Yeah, they're both pretty great. And I feel like you hear all the time, like when an actor's got it or a young kid has got it, they just, they have it. They have like an indescribable charisma or something. But still, if you put two people who've never acted in a film before at the center of your movie, like how do you coach them through how to be the stars of a film? How do you kind of teach them on the job how to do it? Um, lots of different ways. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you that there are probably two there are two, two equally weighted sides to this that one is one is a, a a dialogue and a discussion about what the story is and all that kind of stuff which you hopefully try to not do too much of because you you want instincts and you just want facts you don't want to, I don't I'm not a director that needs to have endless endless dialogue about motivations and all this kind of nonsense it's like it's either there and it's clear to them or it's not Mm. but and not joking is that what you really need to do with two people that have never done it before is that you need to teach them very very pragmatic things um in other words did you get enough sleep last night what did you eat this morning when was the last time you ate i mean i'm i'm really not joking it really is like you know to 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 go for 65 days of shooting a film where 10 hours of those 10 10 you're shooting for 10 hour days because you're shooting with kids and you're shooting every second of those 10 hours. You Maybe you take a break for 10, 15 minutes when you turn around, but it's really a high level of concentration that's needed. And you'd be shocked at how much of it is just really pragmatically making sure that they have the stamina um, to pace themselves. I, I told them very early on, I said, there will, if you think that you can push off learning a scene until the middle of the movie, you know, like, like you would school homework, you're making a huge mistake because once we start, you'll be, you'll, you would just be playing catch up. You'll be trying to learn a big scene the Sunday night before if we're going to shoot it on a Monday and you'll never do it because you'll be so exhausted. You won't have any clarity. So they, they learned the script really from the beginning to the end before we even started. They had months and months to prepare so that they were always ready at a moment's notice to do whatever was needed in the movie. But again, with a 16-year-old boy, I mean, seriously, you know, she, Alana knows how to go on tour, so she knew how to kind of pace herself through that. But Cooper didn't even know 
I could see it. You could see he, he doesn't wake up until 11 o'clock in the morning normally, you know, 12 o'clock. <laughs> you're like, all right, well, I'm going to schedule good scenes after 3, 3.30 in the <laughs> afternoon, you know. And I, it sounds um, kind of silly, but it's really, really true. Um, because, and the reason why that's the most, because their instincts and their, their natural talent is what you're trying to preserve and make happen. You're not trying to get them in some head game thing that a, you know, direct movie director trying to trick them into all this kind of nonsense. That's silliness. What about the, what about the parenting lineage with you? Because you have four kids, you have a couple teenagers. Is, did that make it easier to kind of walk Cooper through this. And even, even, uh, Alana, like I know she's older, but it's her first movie. So in a way it's, it's, she's like another, basically a movie teenager, even though she's an adult, but you have to kind of walk them through. No, you're exactly right. I mean, it's exactly right. You picked up on it is that my, my years as a dad is, came into play. Um, just knowing the management of moods and, and emotions and, 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 um, you know, it's time management when you're a teenager. What kind of time management did you possibly have as a teenager? You know, you did not. <laughs> it's like, it's all so elastic and confused um, that you would never really think to do anything in advance of it. So yeah, I, I think I recognized that as a, as a dad and then I applied it. To I do feel like, I feel like they have better time management skills than our generation did because of like, you're, you're way more connected to everybody. Right. And there's more of a schedule. It's easier to keep a schedule. I feel like our generation was completely aimless and up to the kids almost all the time. Probably, probably more like liquid, like just, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I guess you got phone to remind you at all times of where you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to do. But nevertheless, I don't know. There is an instinctual, there's a kind of thing inside teenagers that They'll get to it in a minute, get to it in a minute, get to it in a minute. And <laughs> those minutes evaporate. Can you talk about um, what you saw with Alana? Like, like uh, never acted before, wow. but is this revelation in this part? I mean, she's gotten, I read some of the stuff the last couple of days, like just people, everybody gets it. They get what you're trying to do with this. And she's everything you'd want from a movie. This happens sometimes when you're discovering somebody in a movie that you've just never seen before. And, and a lot of times for me, that's my favorite part because you feel like you're kind of meeting somebody and you're falling for them in whatever way, either as the, the friend you always wanted or somebody you have a crush on or whatever. You've known this person for a long time. At what point did you go, I could see her like carrying a movie? Because that's a pretty big leap from just somebody who's on stage and in your life. That's true. And... um it was about four or five years ago, five years ago, I would say. I mean, we probably started working together seven, seven or something years ago. And by the way, it, it's also, it's not just the, it's not just the sort of awareness that she could do it, but an awareness of what this story is and this kind of perfect aligning of, of a, a few different elements. Like, hang on a second. There she is in front of my face. There's this story about a girl that works and doing this. And there's this, this piece and this piece, this is all kind of aligning and like, like, um, is as completely undeniable, but she is funny. I, uh, 
I kept really getting very nervous when I first showed the movie to people because I think you you get very, you can get quite concerned that you have had a, a Kool Aid you you've been drinking your own Kool Aid that you have like spent a year of your life staring at this performance and you're like like it's someone's going to turn around and say like I don't know what happened to you you've, you've absolutely lost it you know be I'm delusional this girl is not that good I don't know what you saw in her you know because <laughs> I just kept seeing this performance in front of my face like when is this going to when is she finally going to show up and not and not be able to be hitting doubles triples like fucking you know inside the park home runs like she's on fire she's just absolutely incredible to watch and i guess i i instinctually knew from working with her but um and then once she was reading the script out loud just sitting in the living room reading it if you saw what i saw it wouldn't have been so crazy it wouldn't have been such a leap it would you you would have sat there too and been like yeah i mean this this just is like these words are coming out of her mouth like she's making them up and she it, she sounds like she's improvising even though she's reading something straight from the script um and you know what there's something about alana she's the baby of that family and so she's got this like she's got this like terrier energy you know like kind of it's like half terrier half pit bull, <laughs> right and right. she's all she's always scrapping for a fight even though she's smiling and she's like got this real sweet energy and this this smile that just beams, but she's not. She's a scrapper. She's a little, she's a little, <laughs> and that's an incredibly appealing quality um, in general, but particularly in a film character in a film too. I'm babbling. You guys get me babbling. I mean, you know, this is good. Question? This is this is why you wanted to come back. Go ahead, Sean. <laughs> well, why did this movie? go to the front of the line for you? Like, why was this the one that you chose to make? I was thinking about, was it, is it the, the stage you're at as a parent? Is it thinking about your childhood? Why did it become the thing to do? You know, it's a very good question. Um, it just did. Kind of like thing. It was like, it was kind of like, um, the timing of it all was seeming, you don't make even, you don't even make movies for timing. That's not even the answer. It's just sort of when thing, just something just starts coming over you, taking over. It's like, you see it headed, you see the horizon, you see the end of this, this light at the end of the tunnel and you just start heading towards you. Like this is, this is happening. I knew halfway through writing it that everything else was going to be abandoned and that I had to make a mark on the schedule and say, this is going so well, this is happening. And we have, I'm powerless to stop it. Even after doing a system of checks and balances and checking yourself and saying like, we fucking want to make another movie in the Valley again. When want to make another movie that takes place in 1970, you know, because you, you're, you're one of your struggles should be as a person that does this is to make a variety of different work to, to not have a, every movie be, be something different. So, um, as a matter of fact, you try and talk yourself out of it and you know that if you can't, then then what do you, then you have to keep going. Um, but the story, yeah, I don't know if anything about being a parent factors into it clearly, because also to, the other thing is that I was, that if you're writing what you know, I'm surrounded by teenagers a lot these days. I got them kind of crawling all over my living room or I'm picking <laughs> them up or driving them places, you know, and that's pretty easy to help get you back in touch with the stuff that you went through as a teenager. Um, it does. It gets. It gets your mind running about those times. Well, I loved. I love being in the valley in the 1970s with you again. Although I was devastated, you didn't do like the brief 
crossover wink to my beloved Boogie Nights. Like just have somebody living next door to Amber Waves just for like a split <laughs> second. Just like, wait, is that, is that Amber Waves in the driveway? What's happening there? Uh, uh, y- you've gone backwards a few times now with these movies. And this one, I love being back in 1973. Yeah. Um, and y- it really made me think, and I-, I need to see this again. I'm so psyched that it's at, uh, it's in, Westwood at that awesome movie theater. I'm going to go back a second time. But it made me think of just this different time of social interaction that we were talking even before you came on the Zoom about just how different everything is now and how connected people are all the time. And and you can literally talk to anybody you want or text them or they're there, but they're not really there a lot of times. They're distracted. And in this era, if you wanted to see somebody, you might not be able to see them. You might not know where they are. Yeah. You might not be able to run into them. You might go to two spots and they're not there. Yeah. Um, all that, this, just this different era. But was that one of the reasons you want to do this? Like just going backwards into that era? It wasn't one of the reasons, but God, it was a huge appeal. I'll tell you, it was, it was exciting to think of situations um, that at least have some goddamn mystery, which has all been yanked away from us. I mean... Um, there's no fucking mystery anymore, which is really a drag. I don't know, you know, that's, uh, that's problematic. And whether people, you know, a generation sees it as problem, problematic now, they eventually will. They, they, I mean, come on. It's, um, I don't know. You're, you're, <laughs> I have a collection of pictures of, of my son, uh, from all places all over the world. And it's, it's him standing at phone booths all over the world, abandoned phone booths generally, you know, and mm. uh, generally to get a, to get a six-year-old to take a, a receiver off the hook and stare at it as if it's like a dinosaur <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> we have this miraculous collection of, of phone booth pictures, you know. Um, uh, clear, they, they do know what they are, clearly, but the first couple of him looking at it as if he had no idea what it was, I thought was set the tone for that collection of you know, um, the kids, when they were, um, filming at the, with the pinball palace, that sequence there, yeah. there was a double there. Not only, you know, they were, they hadn't seen each other in a long time because of all the way the world had gone, but they were face to face with something that we all had, whether it's an arcade or a pinball machine that, that they, they felt gypped. They're like, we want this. This is rad. We won't, we didn't, we don't know why we don't have this, but this is good enough for us because they realized it was, maybe it was a little bit about the pinball machines, but it was about a central meeting point to then find a nook and cranny in an alleyway behind where you could smoke a cigarette or make out with a boy or find your, you know, whatever you needed. You could, and whether you rode your bike or got dropped off there, it was, it was important. Something a little bit more interesting than, I don't know, a fucking mall. I, you know, it was, it was good. <laughs> Wait, malls are coming back. Be careful. Yeah, they, there's you know been what? a mall comeback. I don't understand it, but my, my, uh, my son's been going to the mall lately and it's like a thing apparently. Uh, it is, you know what? I'm okay with it. It's, I suppose, some of it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're the, but the malls, the malls these days, you know, malls are like, they're a back lot. They're like universal bad. It's like a recreation of an actual street. With <laughs> <an> actual- <laughs> right. <laughs> State of the art, everything is definitely a little different. <laughs> um, 
the movie looks like it was a lot of fun to make, but you you made it during COVID. Like, was that mm-hmm. just was that horrible? Was it was there a challenge that was interesting about that? It was great. Well, we were meant to start shooting the movie in May, so it was uh, we were all on course to you know the shoot May two thousand twenty. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, and then we stopped in March and we just sort of sat waiting and waiting and waiting. And the first opportunity we had was to start in August of 2020. And it made, I mean, look, there was a lot of people that were really suffering. We were voluntarily going into a situation to make a movie. So who's, I'm not going to complain about that. We like, we, we had to do what we wanted to do, which was give ourselves something something to aim at each day. The amazing thing about it was, um, no, it's not fun directing in a mask. Nothing's that fun doing in a, in a mask, but that's the way that it was. But the great thing was is that all our families, are my, my kids' friends, their families, this interconnected group of people felt an incredible pressure to batten down the hatches, don't be the idiot that goes, runs around on the weekend and does something stupid. We're like, there's only one mission and it's making this movie. And you can do anything for 60 days if you put your mind to it. So let's all get on with it. Um, so the feeling that you were doing something um, special was there for sure, even if even if it was just surviving. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, the most excited person was the guy in uh, somewhere in LA who had 100 classic old cars that you needed to spray around the city for right that guy must have been delighted that here you were making a movie in 1973 well that i'll tell you they were the most happy because they're generally individuals that you can hire out right you have a service and you sort of, some guys have more than others but they're people that you call up and you know i've made enough period films to know you you have a, a, a call sheet and they loved it the most because they were going to roll up not even worry about getting tested. They were going to get dropped a bag full of 1960s, 70s clothes, asked to be thrown them on, and then just drive around in circles all day. And then we'd give them a radio, and they never had to get out of the car. They never mm. had to risk it. They were more than happy. But we were starting up at a time when, when even background extras were, were reluctant to get into the game because nobody quite knew what it was going to be yet. Right. Luckily, we didn't mean, need that many. We needed them at the teenage fair sequence, you know, when he gets arrested, and we needed them in Joel Wax uh, mayor campaign office. We needed some extra help there, but but other than that, everybody seeing the movies, somebody you know, we know, we know personally, is a friend of ours. All right, let's get to the part Sean really cares about more than anything right now. What is that, the, Sean Penn? So we know you have a list <laughs> of the actors. <laughs> You're, you don't have to tell us the list. I know it's your secret list, but there's seven, nine, eleven. I don't know how many actors and actresses on yeah. it. That you're like, yeah, I yeah. need to work with this person at some point. <laughs> you mentioned in the last pod we did, you talked about Leo. Like there was Leo yeah. turned down Boogie Nights, and you were like, well, at some point, some point I'll get Leo. It'll happen. I know it'll happen at some point in my life. You actually end up having his dad in this movie, but <laughs> Sean Penn, I'm guessing, was on the list at the top, if not very close to the top and has been for a number of years. Um, number of years. No, let's go. Let's his has been since I saw him as Spicoli. Um, Bad boys. For our, our general, I mean, I, I, Sean Penn was our Robert De Niro, right? I mean, that's yes. 
for sure. Like hundred percent. He was as talented, as cool, as elusive, and just downright rad, right? Then so and also the mythology around his his um his commitment to his characters, getting in character, staying in character, all this kind of stuff. But um so I've known Sean for a number of years and I've been asking him. I asked him to play the Alf from Melina part in Boogie Nights, your beloved Boogie Nights. Um, I asked him to play that part thinking that that would be great. But um, Oh, man. He, he, worked out for I, the I got best. the right man for the job. Yeah, no, out you did. I just like, that's that. When you say stuff like that, I need time to recover. Like, I almost <laughs> need like a pause. Well, you know, it's a dangerous game to, to hear <laughs> to hear directors say sometimes uh, somebody that was their first choice can always rattle you because yeah. they're inevitably fucking totally wrong. And I, they, what were you thinking? And and you always end up getting the person you're supposed to get. Um, always. It happens every single time. And directors sometimes can never see it. They And they have certain blind spots where they think something would help their film or people to go see it, whatever it is. And if you're lucky, you, you thank God, you know, someone who's smart like Sean would turn me down and know I'm not the right guy. Maybe you want to work with me and that's very flattering, but we'll get to it. And I continued to ask him to play parts that he probably wasn't right for. So this was like, did you write this one for him or were you, what, what? I kept thinking, I kept thinking he is not going to say no to me this time. And now I'm, I'm old enough and wise enough to know that I'm going to force him to do it. <laughs> If he says no, that I will be letting him know that he's wrong and I'm right. And you have to do this. So, um, yeah, I thought of, um, I thought of him straight away as I was writing it. Cause it's a William Holden type character. And I don't know, you know, you know, and that's, that means gravity, that beautiful face that he has now, you know, as he gets older and he's just looks even cooler than ever. And, um, and well, those were the guys we grew up with. The guy, the the guys who looked like they've had a few cigarettes and a few scotches in their day. The ladies still liked them. They always had nice clothes on, but you could see the years starting to accumulate on their face a little bit. I always liked. I always liked, especially at, at this at the, at this time. This is a 70, 72, 73, 74. They would still have the same haircut they always had. But just a little sideburn. <laughs> you know, that was that was just that little touch to uh, current trends, and it always looked so out of place, so strange looking back at it. Yeah, <laughs> William William Holden growing up was my favorite actor. He remind and he did. He reminded me of my my father and my father's friends. They all kind of looked like that, or they looked like they'd be buddies, drinking buddies storytelling buddies, this kind of stuff. Um, and William Holden, like Sean, is also like a little elusive. You know, he he mm. had a, you know, he's always, well, where is he? Well, he's, where do you think he is? He's he's saving Haiti. He's saving Africa. You know, the, Sean's work with CORE is kind of incredible. Like, and, you know, I can remember when there could be commentary about, or snarky commentary about his, his desire to save the world. No one was laughing when he had Dodger stadium up and running right in the middle of the pandemic. And there wasn't anything snark you could say about that. That guy was testing a million people a week when everybody else was falling down. So, and, and William Holden had a similar kind of adventurous spirit. We were playing the, um, that game last night when Bill and I were talking, we were like, Oh, is this breezy that 
Alana's character yeah. is reading the script from and trying to piece together some of the real and not real Hollywood stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the movie just feels really steeped in uh, like a Hollywood legacy, like more than any other movie that you made, even like casting well-known filmmakers, kids or Leo's dad. Like, was all of that like something that you originally started with where you wanted to kind of build this almost like mini Mount Rushmore to Hollywood history? No, it just kept coming my way because the story, the genesis of the story is with this guy, Gary Getzman, who is a producer with Tom Hanks' producing partner. Back up, he was Jonathan Demme's producing partner. Back up to the original incarnation of his life. He was a child actor in the Valley. Um, And so if I I was just following his life, following his, his, his career path, which seemed to collide with Every peripheral showbiz person or even large-scale showbiz person, he's just bouncing and satellite offing all these people. So that was all fact. That was like, that was just me telling the story as it was told to me. And, you know, I would look up things. Newspapers.com is my number one source of research, like the LA Times, basically. And you'd put in Gary Getzman. You can go back and you can find these these, um, quick little bits of like, Valley Entertainment Life, like young Gary Getzman will be singing uh, and dancing at the at Chadney's in Sherman Oaks this, this <laughs> Friday night. He's a marvelous young entertainer. And with, with Chadney's girls, Chadney's girls never say never, you know, this kind of stuff. And you're like, okay, so he's in the Valley. He's doing this showbiz thing. Then he, the next thing he knows, he's, he's you got a part in Divorce American Style. Then he's got a part in Yours, Mine, Ours. Okay, so now he's on his way to the Ed Sullivan Show with a burlesque dancer as his chaperone named Kiki Page, lived in his neighborhood. It's like, okay, Kiki Page, we'll look her up. And it just keeps gathering more and more kind of oddball showbiz stuff as it goes along. Takes some detours in the waterbed world, which, but always has a touch to the advertising world. And that was like when I was, I was witnessing, like, I know this world. I know this world from my dad's voiceover stuff that he was in. So that was very familiar to me, all that kind of like DJs and radio and advertising stuff. I, I sort of grew up near enough to that stuff that it was like, it was just speaking to me. Like, I know this. I mean, I know this like as well as I know anything. What's his reaction? <laughs> like at some point you're like, hey, I'm working on this movie. Lead guy's kind of based on you a little bit, but it's it it goes well beyond that. But you were friends with him for a long time. But I you're also taking liberties with certain things. You're creating, you know, your own version of whatever of the narrative, but you're taking these little pieces. What is that like for him to watch that? I think it's very satisfying that it's the fictionalized PG-13 version. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that he didn't take it seriously for the longest time um, and and thought maybe I was just, because years were going by and I was still, I would go back to stories and say, wait, 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 Can I just, you just got to answer me something about the waterbeds. And I think over the course of many years, he just, maybe he was starting to size up. I wonder if he really is serious about this until the point when I had a full script, I said, okay, I'm, I am serious. I'm going to do it. And, um, you sent him the Microsoft word doc file. <laughs> <with> your script. <laughs> People have been giving you shit about from that last time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, there's been a lot of magic on that microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pro. I, th- I think it's great. I'm the same way. I, I don't like Final Draft. 
That still haunts me. I've, Alana uh, tells a story about me sending her Microsoft Word of the script, and she had to download <laughs> Microsoft Word. You know that? Uh, God, I'm not going to get started about Microsoft Word. I'm I'm in Microsoft. I love Word it right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Gary, no, I mean, look, Gary, Gary. You know, I don't. I think he's. I think he's very happy. Um, I had a magic magical moment because he did he raised his younger brother greg that's very much um um very accurate um he's about eight or nine years older than him and their mom wonderful woman anita was you know was a very a great mom but also was working she's a single mom so she was really sort of busy it wasn't this latchkey kid type situation but it was like gary was very responsible anyway i had this beautiful moment to show the movie to the two of them. And I kind of was sitting behind them and watched, um, watched them watch the movie when I knew, and I knew they'd be happy and they were very satisfied. Um, because it's, you know, he, he knows my heart is in the right place and that all I have is admiration for him. And I wasn't coming at it from any weird angle. I just, I was just trying to take advantage of all this fantastic material he had. That's why I think the movie feels. That's why I think the movie feels a little bit like somebody's telling you a story in a bar. You're like, did I ever tell you about the time I was <laughs> right. arrested for murder? Like, yeah, oh, okay. And then it leaps to another thing. Like, wait, what happened? And then all oh, well, we were at the tail of the cock. So it kind of feels like that to me. I keep describing it as like a perfectly reconstructed memory. You know, it's just no, mm-hmm. most movies don't feel that way. They feel invented. This doesn't feel invented. Good, good. Yeah, I mean, because everything has a touch to some kernel of truth even if we've movified it or whatever we've needed to do to keep keep it propelled along a little bit there's always something you can touch on that is is a real thing well the bradley the bradley cooper piece is my favorite piece of a movie in like four years and that's another thing right you take you take john peters legendary hollywood producer Mm -hmm. dating streisand at the time Mm -hmm. who I don't know. I, I have no idea if he's a nice guy or not, but you decide to have an incredible amount of fun with him, but you had to, you had to ask him, right? Or did you give him a heads up or how did you handle that? Cause he turns him into a crazy person. Which I think he, I think he's, I think he en- quite enjoys not that he's portrayed as this, this wild man. Um, I reached out to him as a courtesy thinking, um, I've never met this man. Uh, I should really tell him that I, you know, and I went and I told him and he's, he was so sweet. He said, what's going on here? I said, uh, he said, I don't really read. Just tell me the, just tell me the story. I don't know if he reads now. He just didn't, he didn't want to sit down and read 130 pages of my nonsense. He's like, just mm. let's cut, cut to the good stuff. And I, and I sort of cut to the good stuff. And as I was telling him, <clears throat> as I had written the sequence, you know, he, they arrive, set up his waterbed without giving too much away. Their paths cross again. And I had written that he's screaming and yelling at them the entire time, just berating them for their inability to get anything done properly. And I could see his face change as I was letting him know that I was, I was losing him. This, he was, he was, he was, his mind was drifting. And I got all the way to the end and he was very sweet. And he said, listen, you're a great artist and I love what you do. And I would never, never tell you how to make a story, but 
what does she look like in the, in the movie? I said, well, she's beautiful, young girl. She said, yeah, okay. There's absolutely no way I would scream at her. I said, well, what, what would you do? And he said, well, I, I, I would try and screw her, you know? <laughs> and I was like, ah, okay, you know? <laughs> That we can do that. That's better. I think that's much, much, much better. Thank, uh, that is that's, um, and I realized like oh, I got a great note from John Peters, legendary <laughs> producer. I'm like, let me go back and fix that. And then, um, as I was leaving his home, he said, "You, you just have to do me a favor. Please get my pickup line in there." I said, "What is it?" He said, "I, I, I would go up to a girl, and I would, uh, I would say, excuse me." Do you like peanut butter sandwiches? <laughs> I said, what did that do? He said they would laugh and it would work. And then we'd start talking. I said, you got it. So it's in the film. Wow. I wonder if that still works all these years later. Peanut butter sandwiches. It. Probably not. You'd probably have to go with like peanut butter on rice cakes or <laughs> sort of, some sort of healthier version of that. This cast, the the whole construct of the cast, Sean and I were both fascinated by it, where you have two people who have never acted as the lead people. You have two of the yeah. most famous actors we have just in there with like these extended cameos, basically. And then a whole bunch of people where I'm like, I know that person, or I know this person, and they all have these great scenes. Like the the child, what was she, the child agent? Yeah, What's Harriet, her name, Harriet yeah. Sansom Harris. She's like mind-blowing in this movie. Yeah, so are these people, do you just have a file of like, I like that person, I got to get them in somewhere. Like, how, how do you over and over again, how are you able to find these people and pull these like five, seven minute performances out of them? People that I haven't really thought of in that way. I do have a list. I also keep a list as I'm going along or usually I know right away that there's, it's one and only person. That was a situation with uh, that part where, um, I had worked with her on Phantom Thread. There's a she plays the drunk American heiress that they come and they steal the dress off of. Right. So I um I had her set in my sights. Um I got very nervous at a certain point because it was the COVID times and all that. And she was in New York. She was on the East Coast. So I knew I had to make a call to her and say, Would you risk your life and get on an airplane? This was still when everything was such a great mystery. Would you, you know, can and come out here? Um, she said yes. So that was nerve wracking because if she had not said yes, I don't know what I would have done. But I think what you're touching on is that why I think it works is that you start the film with two people you've never seen before. People, an audience is an open book. They're like, I'm, a, I'm down for this. If they're going to be good, they're open to it. I don't think anybody needs this kind of horseshit thing for so long. It's like, you got to see the movie stars and we're going to put them on the poster and all that kind of stuff. It's like, nah, no, I think any audience is going to kind of give, give somebody the benefit of the doubt and they deliver and Cooper and Alana deliver. And then right as their story is reaching a kind of peak where you don't know how much is left before something really sort of starts to break it, we introduce a movie star and a movie star playing a movie star is a terrific entrance in, you know, mm. you, and you, and you go with it, you hear Sean's voice before you see him and then you see him. And there's, there's something that actually that lifts the movie up to another little space. You think, okay, something's, this guy's not just going to turn up and nothing's going to happen, or there's not just going to be one scene. Sean, when Sean emerges, you, you expect something as you should, like, I want to see fireworks at Sean Penn. And, and then you add Tom Waits to it and you realize that, oh, we've, we've got a double charged cannon. 
you know, now, right. now, now something is really afoot. Um, same thing with having Bradley play a kind of big Hollywood producer. So having big movie stars play the, a part that can fit the way that the, the main thrust of the story, which is really two kids you've never seen before, I think is the only way you can navigate it to make it work. And, and yeah, you know, I've got a lot of years under my belt, great people that I've worked with, or even people that I've auditioned that weren't right for something that I keep in the back of my mind and a nice little folder and a list of people that I'd love to get back to, or that, that can be, you know, there's so many actors out there that have never had opportunities to do what they're really capable of. I mean, I'm telling you the list is like so long. It's not like any other profession where if you're great, you know, you, it will, you will rise and you will find that stuff. You know what it's like? It's honestly like basketball and that the way you approach it reminds me of like a really good basketball franchise where basketball have these guys that Golden State has is doing this right now. The, Golden State's really good this year, and they built this team around Curry, and they have these role players. And these have been, in some cases, guys who are on other teams. Right. But on this team, because it's this high IQ team, everybody knows how to move without the basketball. It's just really smart. Like, they make sense on that team. Right. And I think this happens with movies and TV, too, where you see, like, Succession right now, Jeremy Strong is somebody mm-hmm. who I think has been good in a bunch of things. And then on succession, they tap into it and they figure it out. And I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the enduring legacies of your career now, now that you're two and a half decades in, you've over and over again been able to find these people and put them in the right spots. I wonder how much that extends to like a behind the scenes situation, like you're talking about a Golden State, like locker rooms, like everything from from assistant coaches to, you know, physical therapy dudes. And, and just because I think of that, I think of our, I think when you're talking like that, I think of my camera operator, my first assistant camera operator, the people that are right there that are yeah. making the, really making the film. If that vibe is good, it's going to make the, these young actors feel comfortable. There's going to be a camaraderie between them. So it's not just the lineup that you're going to see on the floor every night, but the lineup behind the scenes is, is, critical you don't you have no idea how somebody's day as an actor can get completely fucked within the first three minutes of turning up and there's somebody in a makeup chair who says the wrong thing or makes them Mm. weird or plays some annoying music to like start your day off right and the next thing you know you're like you're not going to recover so you're it's it's behind the scenes and the stuff that happens as well there that if that team is is good is then you're then you're going to win the championship, you know. Right. Uh, I I love love the soundtrack. Um, I I'm going to pitch a theory at you. Tell me if I'm onto something. I feel like a lot of the songs that you picked are by bands, acts, singers who are a little bit out of fashion or maybe not considered as cool as they were when they were hitting in the '70s. Blood, sweat, and tears, The Doors, etc. Was that, were you thinking about that or were you just trying to recapture stuff that was popular at that time? Well, no, I was not thinking that. There was no, no, because that's, that's too much thinking. You, you're like lucky enough to get a song that works for the movie that ideally isn't overused because this, you know, that, listen, it's fucking 70s movies. You know, there's no shortage of them that have, have uh, hot soundtracks and either it's the same old shit or even if they're great songs at a certain point, you just kind of roll your eyes because I fucking heard this one before, you know? Um, and they're usually kind of 
slid into cover something up. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to bother telling this story. Just play like uh, that Creedence Clearwater, you know, revival song. And that'll, 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 that'll put us in Vietnam, right? That's that, We got it. John Fogarty, great. So I think, you know, it's a combination of things that can help tell the story, things that can fit within a scene, not clash with the dialogue, stuff that can raise to full blast. And like, and, and if anything, you actually have to ask yourself, I think I've talked about this before. Like if you have the balls to use David Bowie life on Mars or a Paul McCartney, let me roll it. You, you, you have to earn it. They're, they're not cheap. And I don't mean money wise, you know, it's like, don't not do your work and call in David Bowie to help do your work for you, you know? And so, cause I get irritated with films that do that. When they oh, I, I have some takes on this. Yeah. I, Sean, I've never told you this one. I think if it's, the, if a movie is past a certain level of quality, like above some sort of quality line, any song that's used in that movie, like take my beloved Boogie Nights, Spill the Wine is off limits now for all other movies. Right. It's just out. It doesn't get to be used anymore. Right. It's just, if it's an indelible movie that we've watched over and over again, the songs are off the table. You don't get to use them again. That's it. And I, I always get mad if it's, you know, from some movie that I love or is obviously like from a pop culture standpoint matters. And then some director 10 years later is like, ah, I'm just going to grab that one again. It's like, no, hands off. Yeah. Because it's like, in a lot of ways, the songs become characters in the movie. And it's, yeah. it's re- kind of disorienting to see them in another thing. I don't know. It's one of my weird movie things. Let, let me roll it is now off the table. That's it. Can't use it anymore. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, what <laughs> happens, What ends up happening sometimes is, I, I think sometimes if I, it, it can make you feel good if there's some, some B-side stuff or stuff that's not too popular and then it turns up in a television commercial. You sort of wince at first. Then you go, well, you know what? At least that songwriter or his family's getting some cash for this right. because you, I know how hard it is out there. And you're sort of counting on somebody discovering certain songs and that can always, that, that always feels good. It's sort of disposable and you realize, oh, somebody got some cash for that. That's good. I mean, Paul McCartney doesn't need the cash, but you know, there's some other tunes that, that hopefully people will discover. You're always on the lookout too. You're like, just keep that radio on. I mean, there's got, and that is, I will say a crazy thing about the 1970s. Once you think you've heard it all, suddenly yeah. you discover like five songs. You're like, I never have heard this before. Where right. the fuck did this come from? It's crazy. Um, we're thinking about like set movies in the seventies versus like now things like that. The last time you were on, you kind of tipped off like as you're even in the middle of making a movie, you're so creatively inspired that sometimes the idea for the next movie will pop up. You might even start messing around with it. How many, how many like things are you working on at a given time? That might, and and we might not even see 90% of them, but how many like ideas are you messing around with either as you're making a movie or right after when you have that like, kind of the creative nirvana after finishing movie when you just want to go to the next one? Like, well, how many projects? That's a good question. I, like at the moment, it's two, two to three, two and a half, three, you know, and, and, and some of those things are things that have been on the table or um, for a long time, 10, 15 years. And then you sort of go away from them. And I used to get nervous about that until I finally looked back at my life and I realized like, well, you know, talking about your beloved Boogie Nights. It was like, 
I wrote that when I was um, 17. Right. I wrote a short film when I was 17, but I didn't make it for another 10 years because I wrote draft after draft or various incarnation of it. So um, I don't beat myself up the way that I used to about thinking like, why can't you finish this? Because like sometimes things leapfrog over each other and they take that long. So, Do you have uh, a sounding board or anything? Do you talk to people about, is there one person? Do you talk to your wife about it or is it just like all internal? A lot of it's internal. Um, and then at a certain point, I start bursting at the scenes. I can't, I need help or I'm drowning. Or I to try to pull somebody in. People that I work with closely, um, producer, editor. Um, Maya, I try not to bother too much because I don't know if you have this. It's a little like, don't bother me with it on a Monday, you know, bother, <laughs> bother with, bother, bother me with it on a Friday. By the time you've worked through all that yep. nonsense in your head, like don't, and don't come to me on Wednesday either. I mean it come to me on Friday because <laughs> how you feel on a Monday is not going to how you, how you're going to feel on a Friday. So just, and I, yeah, writing can get lonely and you can, you can blink sometimes in that loneliness where you're like, I just, I, I want to get, I want, I want to share this with somebody. And really they, no one, no one, it might, maybe they're anxious to hear what you're doing and they're curious and they want to know when we're all going to go to work again, making film together. They want to schedule their life, but they also don't want to be bored with your bullshit that you're trying to work through. You know, that's just, you know, then again, there are collaborators that, that you do need to be bored with your bullshit to help, help you separate your A material from your B material is certainly sometimes you start writing stuff and you can go down rabbit holes and have a couple of people in my life that'll help me sort through that. The last time we talked, we asked you to recommend a movie. I don't know if you remember this. You recommended Track Town. You yeah. were talking about how you love right. to watch women running or anybody running. And you have yeah. some of this in your other Holy movies. Holy shit. And, yeah. then, and, then, and then you <laughs> made this movie. And I was like, whoa, is that, was that oh, on, the, on your shit. brain? when you were writing this and why is there so much running in licorice pizza? Like, can you tell us about that? That's weird. I never put that together. Um, huh? <laughs> 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 Fucking great. I mean, great. At least I'm consistent. That's nice. Um, the run, you know, running is so cinematic, especially if you have a story that doesn't have uh, big set pieces or special effects, or you just got teenagers, you know, like, Running, running is momentum. Running is an action sequence. Running is, I don't know. It ends up, it also ends, it gives you, it's like a Bonnie and Clyde feeling, isn't it? Particularly to these two people. Like they're mm. on the run from something. They're trying to outrun something. And they're outrunning the inevitability of what's going on between them, which they can't, can't face. So the more you run, <laughs> you just, just keep running. Maybe they won't catch up with you, whatever the problem of the day is. Oh, it's great. Amazing that I said that. Weird. Sean, uh, Sean just had a kid, so he doesn't know this feeling yet. Uh, you have four, including your oldest is 16, right? Yeah. Older? 18? 16? 16. 16. How many do you have? I have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. And um, as you know, you hit a point where you really just want to impress your kids. Nobody else matters. Because they, they have such... You're such losers to them most of the time because you're the <laughs> yeah. guy that's just in their house all day. And if, if once in a while you can get a win with them, it's amazing. This is probably the first movie you've made in a while that you could actually just take all your kids to, right? So, what yeah. did they think of it? 
<clears throat> they love it. Um, particularly the 16 year old, my son ap- appeared to really love it until he admitted about like two or three months ago, <laughs> he said, you know, I don't want, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound mean, but the story of this movie actually doesn't make that much sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I mean, he likes, he likes films with stories. He likes, you know, Hawkeye, you know, I was watching Hawkeye. There's, there's a story. All Marvel films have stories, proper stories. Um, this film is pretty void of a proper story, you know. I mean, of course, it has one, and it accumulates to a story. But in, in any traditional way, he he finally admitted, like, yeah, you know, he's not, you know, and uh, he's nervous about it. But I let him know that was all right. Well, when you're what, you, when you're hanging out with your kids, you're right, especially during the pandemic. You're just watching stuff. What else are you gonna do? You're gonna go out. So did that? Did that get you thinking? Like, wow, should I just? What if I just made my version of Big or one of these movies? Like, what if I made a movie like literally geared for the people I'm in the room with? Because you haven't really done that. Does does your brain ever go that direction? No, not really. But uh, but again, you know, while we were sitting around in this, we were already planning to make this film, and I was I I had seen this as an opportunity. Um, listen, secretly, whether or not they were going to like it or not, it was I could cast all of them and their friends because I needed. That was the nature of the story. So I was just using and abusing the privilege of having my children. Like you, you're in the movie, you're in the movie, you've got <laughs> friends, those friends, that kid's right. got long hair, that kid's good. Um, and they've been a part of this whole process. Um, they, my eldest daughter read the script, so she was able to see it from that point of view. But they, we do dailies every night here at my house. So we, and the whole film was shot here, you know, within yeah. five miles of the house. So you have to understand that the environment is very collaborative in that way that, you know, when the 15, 20 of us that are going to watch dailies show up at my house and we're going to project dailies, all the kids are down here watching them too. So they're eating, they're eating their dinner and watching the dailies and they're able to see take after take and see what we're doing. And, you know, they grew up with Cooper as well. So they're watching his work and they are very close to the Lana. I mean, in, in their lifespan, they've known Alana all their lives or half their lives, you know? So um, take that to the next level, which is that we went into the second lockdown right after we finished shooting and we were editing the movie. So they're doing Zoom school while I was editing the movie. Yeah. So they're, they're, active participants in the course of this film and That's cool. and we're seeing it evolve yeah very cool yeah um to the point where they were upset if i take something out and they or they'd make suggestions i don't know about that take he doesn't look he looks like he's uh he looks like he's memorizing his lines i say you know you're actually actually right good call they were like also a test audience what a film school for your kids Jesus. yeah yeah, pretty bright. Sean wants to be invited for any any dailies. I don't. I don't think I'd fit in with the teenagers. Um, how I, old? How old is your? Uh, how old is your baby? She's uh, five months this week. That's your first one. First one. Yeah, that's great. It's pretty oh fucking God. cool. It's pretty, it only pretty gets cool. better. It only gets better. Um, I'm I'm enjoying it. I was thinking about. I was wondering about when you watch stuff with your kids, especially like if you're watching Hawkeye. Is it changing your attitude about the things that you like or the things that you want to do maybe in your, in your work? 
I think it does change the the things that you like that you if they like it you see it through their eyes and you're and you're far more open probably than 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 you might be um then again there's some stuff that they look at that that I, that I do not like and I'm not <laughs> I can't find a way <laughs> no, no matter how much I love them I I I would rather just leave the room. Like this, this is annoying. I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> you preach to the choir on that one, brother. Yeah, some stuff is just it's it's tough. It's, it's bad. Yeah, it's not good. Um, but it's a little bit like a. It's a bit little bit like um. I was told once. I think my mom was told this uh, when I was a kid. I didn't like reading anything, but but comic books or sort of you know things below the reading level that I was supposed to be at. And some teacher said to her, "Was like, don't don't ever worry about that. Whatever they're watching, whatever he's reading, is good as long as he's reading." And always stuck with me. Like, don't be the party pooper. Don't jump in on the you know pissing on their parade or Mm. yuck. Yum! Just like let let it let it let it evolve, let it happen. Um, yeah, I try to obey that in my house, except for when my daughter watched 15 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, and I actually felt like it started <laughs> to affect her mood. It's such like a melodramatic, crazy things happening every episode, and and she actually was like way more somber than she usually is. And we were like, you got to stop watching that show. It's like actually affecting you. Well, how did she get on Grey's Anatomy? How did she navigate uh, towards Grey's Anatomy? It was a pandemic thing. It was, a, it's a big thing with teenage girls because they were on, it was on Netflix and you just kind of keep going. There's some sort of crisis. And then she decided she wanted to be a doctor, but didn't want to go to med school. So she wanted to just, she was like, this should just be a show where somebody's a doctor, but they didn't actually get medical training. They just learned everything from Grey's Anatomy. I was like, that's <laughs> definitely not a show. Nobody, <laughs> nobody's making that show. Um, but yeah, she just, you know, you binge watch this stuff. And yeah. if you binge watch Succession, right now because there's like 28 episodes like you're probably going to be screwed up a little from a social standpoint for a couple days i would say after that um just because of the characters how bad they are yeah yeah i mean that but completely you know um you know the movie the fish that saved pittsburgh right Oh my God. Yes. I have a poster. I could pull a poster right now for you. We must've talked about this last time. Cause I remember I went to see fish that saved Pittsburgh. I was like, I need some of those, those jean cutoff shorts like Gabe Kaplan has, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're thinking fast break. Am I thinking fast break? Yeah. You're getting, you're getting your terrible seventies basketball movies confused. But Gabe Kaplan is also in the fish that saved Pittsburgh. No, I don't think he's in that one. So, okay, Fast Break is Gabe Kaplan in jean shorts. Yes. He's a basketball coach. Yeah. But where's the, is, is the Fish That Saved Pittsburgh the one where they eat the bag of weed? That's Fast Break. Fish That Saved uh, Pittsburgh is Dr. J on a terrible yeah. basketball team, but they meet a, a psychic who changes the fortunes of the team. Yes, and it has the great title song, The Fish That Ate, ate Pittsburgh. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> if Fast Break is now, I think it, it actually might be the most politically incorrect sports movie of all time. I, I haven't seen it since it yeah, came it's, out. But, it's kind of shocking. But I do remember, but look, but talking about how do these things affect us? Well, they do affect us, you know, especially if, you know, if, if I wanted to go get jean shorts, like, <laughs> right. like, you know. Well, think about Bad News Bears. Tanner, the 
abrasive racist shortstop was like a yeah. cult hero in the mid seventies. It was, he was like a phenomenon. There's magazine <laughs> features about Tanner, this kid, what's going to happen with him. Yeah. No one wanted to be lupus. People wanted to be Tanner. It would have been the worst character. I think <laughs> what, what media are you consuming these days? What are you watching? Cause now, now basically you're doing press for this movie. You haven't started another movie yet. And do you go and do you just start watching stuff? Like what's your process when you're between the movies? I, I don't feel like I'm between movies yet because I don't have that real... Because I'm, I'm still sort of pushing it out there in the world. Still got to finish some technical stuff here and there to get it out for its home video release eventually. I made the time without question to watch Get Back, the Peter Jackson. I was going to ask oh, you. Yes, you watched let's, it? Let's talk about yes. it. Let's yes. do it. Let's talk. What do you, tell us what you thought. Well, I, I mean, I, I fall firmly in the camp that if it had been 18 hours, I'd be perfectly happy. Yes. Right? <laughs> um, but that said, I was so frustrated about three and a half hours in, like, when will I get to hear Get Back? How much longer do I have to wait to see them struggle through this song? And it was, you were really, he really put you in the room because you went through all these emotions, like, I can't wait any longer and I'm, I'm going fucking mad, you know? Um, and that when you eventually, when he does, when he gets you to that rooftop concert, it was like the floodgates open and it was so thrilling. But the overriding sense of melancholy from the whole thing is so strong. And I suppose it goes back to, um, I think we all, we probably always feel like there had to be one thing, like if your parents divorced, like what was the one thing that happened? Oh, there's, there's something happened. And not one thing happened, a million tiny little things happened and it happened in slow motion and it happened over the course of time. And so it was like watching a divorce happen in front of your eyes. It was so slow motion and melancholy. Um, but it just verifies that they're endlessly cool, endlessly the most fucking brilliant guys that ever got in a room together. Um, and I had never heard that Michael Lindsay Hogg was the illegitimate, possible illegitimate child of Orson Welles. That was really interesting to me. Did you know that? I learned did, it after watching did not. crazy stuff. I, it's hard to think that that's not true. Honestly. Look at his face. Yeah. Yeah. He looks like a little, little, little mini me, little yeah. Orson. Um, but I love hearing his big plans to go out to uh, Libya. And <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was classic director. <laughs> director stuff right there like yeah right but why don't we go light some shit on fire and you guys will play and or we'll go to an orphanage not with the real sick ones not with the real sick ones you know that was great the biggest thing had changed for me and we sean and i have both talked about this on our podcast so i'll make it quick for the people okay. thing. just yeah, like yeah. just like uh you know, I'd always had this feeling that Lennon and McCartney had really turned on each other. And I think a lot of that had to do with the interviews that especially Lennon gave in the seventies that made it seem like they were in such a bad spot, but I watched this and I just, I saw two guys that were completely connected creatively who really loved each other. And maybe there are these other factors that were undermining that, but ultimately they really loved playing. Now other people didn't see it that way necessarily, but that's how I saw it. I saw guys who were really connected to the point that George actually kind of had, you know, he, he had self-confidence issues about it because he, there was no way to break into this, these two guys that were this locked in. What, how did you see it? I saw a similar thing, but I also saw that 
the, the, this marriage was dissolving and Paul being the one who was tr- really trying to keep it, to keep trying it, to save going, it, yeah. trying, to, trying to save it. Um, and that there were moments of, of John Lennon just checking out, checking out in a kind of, uh, of a, a, a kind of self-imposed ambivalence. Like I, I, cause that would like, that would surprise him when sort of moments would happen when they would connect and you just saw the whole place light up like, oh, you can't, you can't get away from this when you guys connect to each other. But it was a classic thing too, of like sort of very British way to deal with things too. Like no one's really saying it or they're saying it under their breath. The first situation they're in is shit. It's like, it doesn't sound good in here. No one really knows. What, are we making a movie? Are we making a record? There's no direction. I wish they'd actually gone back a little bit more to what was touched on at the beginning is missing that father figure, the Brian Epstein figure. That was so interesting. And Paul yeah. even says it, you know, like, well, we've been a bit, you know, rudderless, whatever it is. But um, it's a classic example of any creative situation you found yourself in. You're like, you, 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 there's a lot of people chatting around. And when you realize, like, it's like this fog. If you can just snap out of it and, and get a change of scenery, something else interesting can happen. Like the second they get over to Apple, you feel them all come alive again. You're like, like, I don't know. It must have been, must have been, must have been rough for them at that point. It's the headlines are around the corner. They can't last forever. Thank God they didn't in a way, you know, I don't know. Um, but no one really wants to pull. No one really... No one wants to break up, but everybody does and you feel it. Oh, fuck. I don't know. It was magical. Magical. I hope there's another 18 hours release at some point. <laughs> um, oh, I'm going to go back and hear you guys talking about it. I want to hear. Yeah, we'll send it to you. Um, you have to go. This this movie was. Fan- yeah, it, we're getting word. You have to go. This movie was fantastic. We loved it. Sean's seen it twice. So I'm about to see it twice. It's my I favorite. I look forward I look forward to seeing uh, the reactions of all the people. It's only in like how many theaters? Like four theaters right now? At the moment, it's only in four theaters, but it's going to sneak preview this weekend and then it's going to sneak preview the next weekend and then it's going to come out in a lot more theaters on Christmas Day. But, you know, we're trying to trying to get this movie to play in theaters. You know, back in the old days, you used to have a movie that would play in a theater for a year, right? A year. Like Exorcist played two theaters for a year in LA. That's just how they did it. So we're trying to emulate a, bit, a little bit of that, just like play better theaters for a longer period of time, avoid it being on your phone for as long as we can and just try to take it back to a little bit of that. Oh yeah, Sean, you were going to ask him about that, about just what it's like to release a movie in the Marvel era. That's a movie like this, that you're trying to slow, slow burn. It's a, it's a really hard thing to do. We haven't seen a lot of people pull that off. It's, 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 it's super hard. Not, it's not as hard as you think. It just requires a patience, stamina, and just keep reminding people that it's there and just just try to keep, you know, feeding the beast and sort of guiding people towards where it is. And the funny thing is not it's not wildly inventive. It's just hasn't been done in about five years. So yeah. suddenly it's like, oh shit, that's right. Remember those days we'd release a movie and go search for it and Sean's going to start sobbing right now. This well, is everything he no, wants I, to hear. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it that way. I appreciate it. You know, we we do this show on the on the network called The Rewatchables where we talk about one movie that we love. And we were talking, we talked about Back to the Future last year. And I think Back to the Future was the number one movie at the box office in like November and then again in like March. And yeah. how, how did that happen? <laughs> how crazy that is and how we kind of missed that. Right. Um, but you should you should come back and do an episode of The Rewatchables about a movie that yeah, you love. Yeah, we, we're, we're forcing you to come back. Like how you forced Sean Penn 
to be in your <laughs> yeah. movie. We're forcing right. you to be in a rewatchables. We're just gonna just badger you until you do it. Uh, good luck with good luck with everything. Good luck with the rollout. Congrats on the movie. We loved it. Uh, you did it again. I love talking to you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. 